Psalm chapter 143. Psalms is an interesting book. Maybe you didn't know this. Perhaps you did, especially if you're a Bible student. But the book of Psalms is a song book. And there are different writers within this ancient text of Psalms. And so some of it is by a guy named Asaph. Some of it is by a guy named David. And this particular psalm is by King David. And what's really interesting is David writes these psalms at different stages of his life. And we know David to be a guy who had gone through some struggles. He was a guy who was just a shepherd boy, tending his sheep, guarding the sheep from lions and bears, all kinds of different things. And David was called to be a king by God, anointed to be a king. And as he was called to be a king, even though he had no relation to the current king, Saul, God was speaking directly to his heart that one day he would take the throne. And from his descendants would come the savior of the world. Jesus Christ would come through the lineage of David. Now, what's really interesting is that King Saul was still on the throne when all this happened. Now, how would you feel if you found out that your descendants wouldn't continue to be royalty? And because Saul had sinned against the Lord, Samuel told him that the kingdom was going to be torn away from him. And so Saul the whole time was trying to keep his kingdom together. And the, the more he held on to his kingdom, the more it was slipping away from his fingers. And so what did he do? Many of you guys know, he started persecuting David. He would invite him over for dinner, but then he tried to spear him to death by chucking a sharp object at him at the dinner table. He would hire people to go find him. And so now David, who is an enemy of God's anointed, God's king, is running for his life. And you got to imagine that David was questioning things, wasn't he? While he's hiding in caves, homeless, friendless, abandoned, I can imagine that he's almost like thinking of, okay, whose voice do I believe in, Samuel or King Saul? Both of them are supposedly God's anointed, right? One says I'm supposed to be king, and one says that I'm supposed to die. So which voice do I listen to? And I don't know how many of you have written songs before. Anyone, a musician here, and tried writing, writing a piece of poetry, music, creative people, works of art? Any of you guys out there? So for me, as a songwriter, it's not like you can just sit down and say, I will write something. Sometimes it works that way, but the best things I've done kind of happen as a byproduct of the emotion that's welling up inside of my heart. It's kind of like I've written songs where it's like I wake up at five in the morning and I know exactly what I'm supposed to write, like a little line, a little chorus, a melody or something, and it kind of takes a shape of its own. And I almost wonder if David in his hiding, in his agony, just composes this song all at once, just sits down before the Lord and just writes his heart out. And so let's read a couple opening verses of the psalm and see if we can relate. It says, hear my prayer, O Lord, in verse 1. Give ear to my supplications. In other words, my requests. In your faithfulness, answer me. And in your righteousness, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight, no one living is righteous. 
Immediately he asks for God to answer his prayer. And I almost wonder if you find yourself in that spot too. Where you came here today and you said, I will give this church thing, I will give God one last chance. Maybe you've been discouraged. Maybe you felt like God is not answering your prayers. Anyone ever feel that way? It's not like you hate God. It's not like you dislike God, dislike church. You just feel like nothing is hitting you. When you read in the morning once in a while, when you pray, you feel like you're talking to a wall. And so you start wondering, is God even listening? Is God even really out there? Especially when you compare it to all the other religions of the world. I mean, there's over 2,000 different religions. How do we know that we have the right one? How can we be so sure? How can we be so confident when there's Muslims that are just as confident as you and I? There are Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, people that say that they're Christians. They're just as convinced as you and I. And they seem to have some kind of experience with God. There will be people, you, you can go on YouTube and search up these testimonials of a person who's a Mormon, a person who has uh, found enlightenment, a person who's a Buddhist. And you'll see these different people, how they found enlightenment or whatever. And it could sound like what we have. How do we know that what we have is right, especially against the backdrop of the times that you're speaking and it seems like God's not listening, and the times that it feels like God isn't saying anything back? David felt this way. And I appreciate Psalms like this, where he says, Lord, I want you to answer me. Have you ever prayed that? Lord, I need you to answer me. I came in this building, and this is... This might be the last, last time I, I stop in. This might be the last time I open up the Bible. This might be the last time I go to church. Because you've just been so discouraged. Imagine David just feeling the weight, even if you're not a Christian, okay? Historical figure David really happened. Really, there was a person named Saul, and he really wanted to kill David. He was in this place of questioning. Is God really listening. And on top of that, what David recognized is, especially, not because he doubted that God was real, but doubted, perhaps, that God would listen because of how wicked he was. You see, David recognized something. That, he said later on, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. In other words, if I have unconfessed wrongdoing, unconfessed sin, if I am harboring inside my heart anger, hatred, filthiness, whatever it is, if I refuse to let go of that, the Lord will not hear me when I pray. In the Bible, you see contrast where God speaks mercy, but over his people, he says, when you pray, I won't even listen to what you're saying. How do you know that that's not me and you? How do we know that we're okay and, and, and God's actually listening to what we're saying when we do pray? That's one of the most discouraging things, right? When you're going through a trial and you feel like no matter what you do, it seems like God just doesn't care. And maybe you're like, oh, it's the voice of the enemy, but then again, maybe it's not. You just really don't know. Well, David says, 
In your faithfulness, answer me, in your righteousness. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm not approaching you based on my goodness, the fact that I'm a good person. I'm approaching you because I know for a fact that you are a good God. The first thing we got to do when we're going through these dry seasons is, is recognize that's a healthy sign. It is a healthy sign to recognize exactly what you're recognizing. If you are worried that God is not listening, that is good. That is a sign that you might have the Holy Spirit. That is a sign that you might care about the things of God. Because if you were just completely in the world, could care less, then why would you want God to hear your prayers? So a person that recognizes that, that he feels this separation anxiety from God has recognized a good thing, just like pain, when you recognize it, is a good thing to direct your attention towards the wound. I stubbed my toe yesterday, and it started bleeding. Now, I need to put some things on it, antibiotics, whatever, Coca-Cola, things to make it heal up. Otherwise, it's going to get gangrene, my toe will fall off, and then I will bring it here, and you don't want to see it. The first thing that we have to recognize is that's a good sign when there's pain. There's a good sign when you recognize that you are separated from the Lord. But then what? What do you do after that? Well, recognize that God is a good God. You have to ra rationalize from the foundations first. Okay, does God exist? Look up at the sky, all right. Probably good chances that God exists. This didn't just, what's the alternative? Everything just exploded into existence. I don't think so. If God chose to create, then he's a personal God. Why? Because he had to make a willful decision to make you and I. And not just any just work of art, not just inanimate objects, but living human souls. People do that for reasons, right? When you create a work of art, you do that for a reason. If you compose a song, you a piece of art, it means something to you. It's a personal reason. God, if he created you, he created you for a purpose. And then we have to ask ourselves, what is that purpose? Where does good come from? Where does evil come from? All these questions. Once you rationalize that, you realize, okay, there has to be something out there called goodness. There has to be a good, good God out there. Otherwise, goodness and evil is just a human invention, and we're just silly for even asking those questions. But I don't say that to go deep on you. I say that because you can always go back to the foundations of what it is that you believe. And David does that very thing. He says, I know that you're good. He'll say that later on in this chapter. So if God is good, the question is, is there sin in my life that I need to confess? Tonight, I'm going to give you some diagnostic questions to determine how to be revived and hear a fresh word from the Lord. Diagnostic questions. And the first one is, is there sin I need to confess? We talked about how David noticed that if he keeps sin in his heart, God's not going to hear his prayers. In the Bible, in 1 Samuel, there was the priest, Eli, who had wicked, wicked sons that he did not punish and he did not deal with. These sons were so wicked that when people brought the sacrifices into the temple, that they would sleep with 
some of these ladies that would come in to offer their sacrifices. And they would take whatever it is and they would eat of it, they would feast on it as if it was their sacrifice. And so people that were coming to meet with God instead were engaging in sin because there are people in the way between the people and God. And so God took this very seriously and was judging Eli. And in fact, we see in the opening verse of chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, it says, The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. And so it could be possible that there are things that we are not willing to give up that are keeping us from hearing that fresh word from the Lord. Why? Because God is saying something to you. And we refuse to listen. If you're a person that's sleeping around and you're wondering why God hasn't said anything, it's because he has said something to you and you just don't want to listen. It's that he's told you to abstain from sexual immorality. Not because he hates you, but he needs to discipline you and he needs to punish you so that you see the end of your sin, the ends of your ways. And people in the next 10 years or so, if they haven't already, are going to recognize the consequences of living just completely giving yourself to, to so many different people. To be able to say, you know what, I don't care who I sleep with. I don't care who it is. I don't care if they love me or not. I'm just going to let them use my body. The consequences of that are far greater than people realize. Because sin in the moment is pleasurable, but its end is the way of death. There are always consequences to evil actions and things that are sinful. And people don't think about that. When I was younger, I would often do physical exercise without ever stretching. Never. I never stretch. And now I'm suffering the consequences of never stretching. I like messed up my knee the other week. I can't flex my fingers. Like when I try to play piano, like they're so stiff and, and I feel things in my back and I'm just like an old man at 27 years old. There are consequences not, to not taking the proper actions. And because God loves you, he doesn't want you to think what you're doing is okay. He wants you to come to the end of your sin so that you can repent and have that fellowship with him once again. Now you might be thinking, well, isn't all sin the same to God? Isn't all sin the same? So why does he care whether or not I did that one thing? Why does he care whether or not I'm still looking at pornography? If it's all the same to God. I mean, lying's just as bad, isn't it? Having lustful thoughts, all that stuff is just as bad. No, no it's not. And that's something that has kind of pervaded our generation, is this belief that all sin is equal in the eyes of God. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. The closest thing you come to is when it says, Jesus said, you've heard it said that if you sleep with another person's wife, that's bad, you've committed adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed that sin against her. The reason why he says that is he's not saying lust is just as bad as committing adultery. What he's saying is that is the root of all these sins. So that being said, we have to ask ourselves, is there a root, is there something that we're not dealing with that we need to confess the second diagnostic question is, am I putting myself in a position where I can hear him? 
Am I putting myself in a position where I can hear him? Imagine you're about to call somebody, and as you do, you put them on speakerphone. As soon as they answer, you leave the room, go to a different room, and try to talk to them. What's going to happen? Nothing. Because you haven't put yourself in a position where you can hear what they're saying. And we could do the same thing if you borrow that analogy with God. Say, I don't know what he's saying to me. Well, have you actually put yourself in a position where you can listen to what God is going to speak to your heart? There are many people that will say things like, I just don't feel like God is giving me any specific direction. When's the last time that you read the word of God? Uh, probably like two weeks ago. Well, how else are you expecting him to speak? Um, I was thinking like direct revelation. Like I was going to walk outside and God would like, in the clouds, start forming letters, saying stuff. If we won't accept his written word, why would we believe anything else that we see out in the world? If we can't trust that this is enough and this is sufficient and this is God's letter to us, why would we suddenly believe anything else that's revelation from God? So we need to put ourselves in a place where we're reading consistently, we're praying, and spending time in Christian community. Those three things are very important. You need all three. Not just sitting before the Lord and reading his word, not just praying, speaking to God, but also involving yourselves in Christian community, coming to church, having accountability, and not just pseudo-Christian community, whereas I went to youth group, and therefore I have community. That is not true. That does not work that way. Just because you go somewhere doesn't make you a participant. You can go to a concert that you absolutely hate. Somebody told me before he went to a country concert last night. Didn't like it. Just because you go doesn't make you a participant. And instead, we have to involve ourselves in community where it's meaningful, we're vulnerable, and we're pouring into other people. But let's start with the Bible. Why should we read the Bible? What's so good about this book? Well, you get a couple different things. Number one, you get comfort. The Bible speaks comfort to our hearts. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, it says, We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. Again, it says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. If you're discouraged, the greatest antidote is to open up God's word and find out what God says about your situation. It also gives us direction. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. 2 Timothy 3.16. Many of you guys know that. If you feel like there's a barrier between you and God, you're able to diagnose exactly what that is by reading his word. It also gives us spiritual sustenance. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 says that God humbled you by letting you go hungry and feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone, rather we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You've heard it said before, how many days could you go without taking a shower? How many days could you, I mean, like, you have different answers depending on whether you're a guy or a girl. But 
after a while, you'd notice that you're filthy. In the same way, you need the cleansing of the word every single day. How many days could you go without food? Well, you need to be able to partake of the Lord's Supper. You need to be able to read his word and get that spiritual sustenance. It also gives us sanctification. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Sanctifies us. So, very basic things just in case you forgot. And maybe you're like, oh, I don't need to write this down because I already knew that. True. It might be true. But how many of us believe it? Believe it. Because if we did, wouldn't we be in the Bible? Right? Like, if you knew that God was actually about to speak into your situation that you're going through right now, wouldn't you open up? And that's why we felt that conviction when we first opened this message of, yes, I want God to answer me. Well, have you been in his word? Maybe you started, because there was times, like, especially when I was in college, when I wasn't, or a little bit before, I remember there's a time when I was reading like every other day, but it wasn't consistent. And I felt like I wasn't speaking. And so what I did is I, I set a day and I said, I'm going to read the Bible. I read 20 chapters of Jeremiah. And I did. And I was exhausted. After reading 20 chapters, it's just like, I don't know, I'm good for like an entire week now. That was the wrong way to go about it. And said just a little bit. A little bit every day goes a long way. So let me give you some practical tips in case you don't know how to have a good devotional life with the Lord. Remember, it starts with the right motivation. The right motivation. You're not doing this to get things from God. You're not doing this because God will accept you when you read the Bible. You're not doing this because that happens too, right? Lord, if you let me date that person, I will read the Bible every day. As if God needs you to bargain with him. Lord, I will give to all the poor if you would just give me... No. God doesn't need you to reason and rationalize with him as if he needs you to do anything. He's God. He has everything. He made everything. So coming to it with the right motivation. You're not doing it so that you can show off. You're not doing it so you can come to youth group and so that Mr. Kenny doesn't go up to you and say, so what did you read? I'm like, oh, I've got five chapters of the New Testament memorized from yesterday. You're doing it for one reason and one reason alone, to encounter Jesus. I started labeling my devotions differently when I take my notebook in, in the morning. I do, I do morning devotions and night devotions. Only been doing morning devotions for the past two years. Before that, it was all nighttime devotions because I'm a night owl. I'm not a morning person. But in the morning, since I added on it, I got a little bit spiritually, you know, mature. In the morning, I'll write, I don't write devotion anymore, I title it An Encounter, because I want to remind myself every morning that the reason why I'm doing this is to fall in love with Jesus more and more, to encounter God. So that's the right motivation. Secondly, we need to form a habit. Listen, it's okay if at first you don't want to do it. There are many times, like, people will tell me, like, oh, dude, you have to watch this movie. And I think about it, I'm like, do I really want to sacrifice two hours of my day, two hours of my night to watch a movie that may or may not be good? Or even if I think that it's good, everyone's told me it's good, it's just like, I don't know, it's two hours. And I was coming back from the plane um, on Monday, and I never watch movies really ever. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to watch a movie. 
And so I'm scrolling through, and I saw there's that movie Creed, that movie about, like, you know, Sylvester Stallone and whatever. Whatever it is, Rocky. That guy. (laughs) Y'all seen Rocky. Yes, that movie. And then it said, like, questionable content in the little bio, and it's like, questionable content? I'm like, I have no idea what that is. It could be fine, it could be bad, I just, I don't know. So I was just like, I won't watch that movie. And then, then there's another movie about, like, um, it's called Concussion with Will Smith. And I also said disturbing images. Like, what does that mean? I don't know. So I'm sure it was fine. I just didn't know. And I didn't want to, like, watch the movie halfway. You know what? Like, when you're watching a movie and it's towards the end and then there's just something completely profane thrown in there, you're like, what the heck? I went through the entire movie fine and now my mind is ruined. And you feel like you want to finish the movie because you've gone in so far. It's just, it's, I don't want to deal with that. So, I didn't watch that movie, so I was left with two choices. I could watch, like, um, Toy Story again, because that's safe, hopefully. If I remember, I think that's safe. And then Pan, it's like a new Peter Pan movie. I watched Pan, terrible, absolutely terrible. I wasted an hour and 43 minutes of my life. Like, I was a half hour into the movie, and I really just wanted to give up. I was just like, but I was like... I don't know. I gave it a try and was, I was scarred. So, the point being, the point being, I don't even know, like, they were friends. Hook and Pam were friends of the entire movie. It doesn't even make sense. So, the point, though, is, the point is, there might be times that you approach the Bible and you don't feel like doing it. You don't feel like reading. And that's okay, but are you going to start small to build a habit? Because as you do, your affections grow as well. So choose a consistent time and choose a consistent location. Those two things are really, really important. Consistent time, consistent location. And let me tell you right now, everyone look up here. This is really important. You're about to go into summer and you think, you are fooled into believing that it's going to be easier to do your devotions because you don't have school. That is a lie. Absolute lie. Tell me how I know because I've seen it happen before in my own life. Oh, you wake up, you sleep in, like you wake up 11 o'clock, noon, and then you're like, well, I have all day to read my Bible. And then it's midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning, you're like, well, I'll do it tomorrow morning because I slept in today. And you do the same thing tomorrow. So it's really important that just as you'd set a time to hang out with your friends, you set an appointment with you and God. Block out 15 minutes. Block out five minutes, whatever it takes. And when you read... Don't read like, I'm going to read five chapters, ten chapters. Just say, I want to read until I get something out of it. Make that your goal. You should do something. Read one chapter a day. I read one chapter a day of the Bible. That's it for about seven to eight years. And that seemed to do something in me, okay? We believe in the word of God. We believe that's sufficient. We believe it's powerful. I'd rather, I believe God would rather us read one chapter and walk away with something Then read five chapters and not understand anything. So be consistent in your time and location. Location is important too because what I've noticed is if I have a specific chair, if I have a specific room that I meet with God, it's like I can focus solely on that and I'm removed from all those distractions. One of the hardest things for me to do is to sit in front of my computer and read my devotions. So I stopped doing that. Why? Because... Since I'm, you know, I make music and stuff, I have to my right a piano, 
in front of me, I have speakers, my computer, and it's just as easy to go on Facebook or pull up my music program and start writing stuff. That's what it's designed for. It's my workspace to write music. So what I do is I go on the other side of the room and I'll sit on my bed or I'll sit on a couch or something and I'll make that the place where I meet with the Lord. So if you do that, it just, makes you, it just helps you be not distracted. Same thing with your cell phone. Take your cell phone, put it away. Your friends will not miss you for five minutes. If it's me, though, make sure that the ringer goes through because it's probably important. I'm just kidding. Also, you want to have a plan. Have a plan. It is Pastor Andy Dean that once said, if you don't have a plan, you plan to fail. He actually wrote a book on this, Learn to Study the Bible in 40 Different Ways. You can pick that book up at the bookstore. Great book, and it's great and give you all the different kinds of plans and methods in order to study the Bible and make it enjoyable. And you don't want to just have a plan, but change it up often. So that way you're kind of exercising those spiritual muscles in different ways and shocking them so that you are not getting used to it. You also want to keep a journal, if possible. How are you expected to remember things that God says to you if you don't write them down? Really important that you're keeping a journal because then it forces you to think, okay, what is God speaking to my heart? So I've kept a journal for... um, I think I started it 2011. I think it was August 2011. Or no, it was 2010. Had to be. August 2010 till now, I've journaled every single day. Just kind of what happened throughout the day. One verse from what I read that evening. And then a short little one sentence application. And then a little prayer request underneath. Done that every day. And it is one of the most valuable things I've ever done. And it's just a, a way of life for me now. And because I've done that, literally, like, I can go back and see answered prayers. I can, like, I still to this day can look back at the time that Andy asked me to take over youth ministry. And I wrote, like, in the prayer request, like, I don't know, should I do it, should I not do it? Like, that's exciting. You know, like, praying for some of you guys. I'll write some of those things down. And I get to see what happened afterwards. So if you just want to be blessed, start keeping a journal. And although it might be troublesome in the beginning, you'll get used to it and you'll be blessed. Someone once said, I don't know who said it because I found this quote a billion different places. Daily devotions are, are about progress more than perfection. When we wait for perfect circumstances to have quality time with the Lord, they rarely occur. So don't wait for the perfect circumstance. Don't wait for the perfect time. Make time for the Lord just like you make time to eat, just like you make time to shower, and he will bless you in that time. Also, don't forget to pray. That's really important. And here's why. A lot of us, actually, I made this mistake of making prayer like it's a separate thing from devotional time with the Lord and reading the Bible. And so because of that, it's like, read the Bible for 30 minutes, pray for 30 minutes, or read the Bible for whatever and pray for whatever. Instead, it's okay to have a conversation with the Lord. So be reading the Bible, and as you're reading, you are praying. You're starting off by saying, Lord, I want you to speak to me. And as you're reading, you're thanking the Lord for whatever he's showing you. It's okay for, as people come to your mind, you start praying for those people. As situations pop into your mind, you're praying in the moment. You're praying without ceasing. But make that an active element. Because sometimes we feel like God isn't answering, but have we really sat before him and even asked him the question? Now, Christian community, we talked about a little bit before. But I want to quote one verse to you. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift 
away. It's so important because it's so easy for us to wander, be distracted. The things of this life just pull at us. And you guys have felt it. Where it's like one day you're on fire for the Lord. One day you're excited about the things of God. You want to come to youth group. You want to be in church. You want to study the Bible. And the next day, not so much. Just kind of like, I just want to be left alone. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like reading my Bible. And just, we're up and down all the time. And that's why we need a brother or sister to hunt us down and tell us, hey, 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 have you been reading? Hey, I haven't seen you in church in a while. And listen, those people are both a blessing and curse to us. It feels like a curse in the moment, but it's a huge blessing because they're rescuing us from drifting off from the Lord. When a person calls you out on sin, thank that person, because guess what? That was probably really hard to do. One of the hardest things to do is hold your own friends accountable. Like me, holding you guys accountable, easy. Holding older people accountable, easy. People my own age, a little bit harder. Why? Because it kind of feels like, well, who are you? Like, I knew you when you were in your sinful stage. I knew you when you were at that party with me. And it feels like you can't step above and actually have a place to say anything. But that's why if someone confronts you on sin, thank that person. Thank those people because they loved you enough to say something, regardless of whether or not you would like them thereafter. Very, very important. And we need Christian community. We need to be completely invested in these relationships. Next diagnostic question, and this is, uh, there's one more after this. It's a little bit shorter one. Is there a word I don't want to hear? Is there a word I don't want to hear? Immediately what comes to mind is Jonah, right? Maybe you were thinking of Jonah too. Where Jonah was called by God to go to a city called Nineveh, and he was told to tell them that they were in sin and that they would repent. And Jonah, because he didn't want to see this evil, wicked people repent, he refused to go. It's almost as if someone was told to go over to Iraq and speak to ISIS and tell them to repent. Now, not many of us would do that. Because you'd be like, well, that's a death sentence. Well, Jonah, on the other hand, knew that they would repent because he knew that God was gracious and he would forgive. And so out of the bitterness of his heart, for whatever reason it was, we can't psychoanalyze, he just didn't want to go, you know? So is there a word that we don't want to hear, that God has spoken, he has told us to be obedient, and we refuse to listen? King David, at one time, if you remember, had one of his mighty men, he had these people that were valiant, they were strong in his army. And one of them, Uriah, he coveted his wife. And he saw her on a rooftop, and then he wanted her for himself. And so his plan was to kill the husband, which was one of his strongest people in his army, so that he could sleep with his wife. And as he did, there was a prophet, Nathan, that came up to David and said, hey, David, I, I got a question. There's a guy who like had so many lambs, so many sheep. He had so many in his flock. And then there's this one guy who had just one little lamb. And then he robbed the lamb, killed the dude, and brought him over into his pasture. What would you say about that guy? And David says, oh, that guy should be hanged. 
Well, I don't think he killed the guy, but that guy should be killed. That person should be punished, thrown in prison. And Nathan said, you are that man. Sometimes there's a word that we don't want to hear that God's speaking directly to our heart and we're just so stuck in our ways, we're so lost in our sin that we refuse to listen. Sometimes, pay attention now, the accusation that we get the most defensive about, everyone look up here. Sometimes the accusation you get most defensive about is the one that you need to hear the most. When you sense yourself getting in defense mode, you have an anger problem. No, I don't. When that happens, careful, because you might be that man. When someone calls you a liar, when someone calls you a cheat, you say, oh, I'll never do that. I'd never be like that person. Watch out, because you might be that person. We need to instead have a heart that's vulnerable before the Lord, where we're constantly checking our heart, saying, Lord, is there any wicked way in me? Is there anything I haven't repented of? Is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Because I don't want to break fellowship with you and I don't want to be lost. I don't want to drift away. Finally, the last diagnostic question. Is there a word I don't believe? Is there a word I don't believe? Let's go through the rest of the psalm. Just read it. And as we do, kind of with some of the lessons that we've pulled from this study so far, let's read it and see if the Lord speaks directly to our heart. It says in verse 3, For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. He says then in verse 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. And so David, as he's persecuted, as he's feeling completely oppressed, he tells himself, he remembers how good God is. And because of God's goodness, he reflects on it. He stretches out his hands and he wants more. Is there a time that God's been good for you, to you? Is there any time at all that God has at some point, reveal himself to you. Was it on a retreat? Was it a time that you were alone with the Lord? Now, I have like some, some of the best times of my life were times that I was just like, I would go off, I went hiking by myself, drove two hours, prayed the whole way, went hiking by myself in the mountains, and just like there's nobody for like a mile in any distance, open up my Bible on a cliff and just read out loud some of the best times I've ever had in my life. Not like at a concert, like those have been great. Not playing shows, those have been great. Some of the best times of my life was when God spoke to my heart. When God revealed himself to me. When I was, and some of the best times, conversations with people about Jesus. Like sitting like, I'll be able to sit down with like someone like Mr. Duquesne. We'll sit down, we'll just chat about Jesus. We both leave just like with this cheesy smile on our face. Like, I became one of those people, one of those Jesus freaks. One of those people that are just like, what's, what's wrong with this guy? Some of the best times spent with the Lord. Do you have a time like that? Because it's the, in the moment where you feel persecuted, you're in suffering, that you need to remind yourself of God's goodness the most.
Verse 7, answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I, I be like those who go down into the pit. What he's basically saying is, Lord, if you don't show up, I have nothing else left. That's very contrary to the world this day, isn't it? In the world, people have all their other options. Well, Lord, if you don't show up, I'm going to chase after that person. If you don't show up, I'm going to pursue that career. But the person who recognizes that only God has the words of eternal life will say, where else can I go? Jesus, when he was speaking about his body, he was talking about, you know, communion. He was saying that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and people took it literally. And people to this day actually take it literally, especially in some denominations, which is strange to me. But Jesus said that, and then people are like, this is weird. Like, I'm not following Jesus. He's talking about, like, cannibalism. And then so they leave offended. And Jesus was just purposely doing that to weed out the people that were only in it for free food and wanted to see his miracles. And then when he sees Peter, he says, are you, you going to leave too? Peter says, where else can I go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Oh, to be that person. To be that person where you've spent all of your time, all of your energy pursuing the Lord so that if it's true that God doesn't exist, if it's true that Jesus isn't God, you got nothing left. Like Paul said, we of all, if the resurrection isn't true, we above all men are the most to be pitied. He says in verse 9, cause me to hear your loving kindness, or 8, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O my Lord, from my enemies, in you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. So he asked for guidance, cause me to know the way in which I should walk, and ask for obedience, saying that you are my God, not my friend, not the person I hang out with, but you are the one I worship. Lastly, he concludes in two verses, 11. It says, revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. In this last part, what he's saying is, he ends the psalm by saying, believing that God will in fact deliver him. He has faith, trusting, as he's recounting, and maybe this happened to you too, and if not, this is what you can do. As you feel like God isn't speaking to your heart, as you feel like God is distant, and you start reminding yourself of God's goodness, suddenly, you have faith. Suddenly, you can believe that if God was faithful in the past, he's going to show up again. If there was that one time that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God spoke to me, I know that he can still speak to me today. But now the question is, is there sin in my life? Are there things I need to deal with? Or is it that I simply need to believe the word that he has already spoken? The last diagnostic question is, is there a word that you don't believe? Let's imagine like Abraham. I can't imagine what this is like. Abraham, when he's hanging out with his boy Isaac, is told that Isaac is the promised child, you know. He was told that 100 years old he was going to have a baby, and, he, and like his wife laughed, like that's hilarious. 
100 years old, I'm going to have a baby? Yeah, okay. And then the angel's like, why do you laugh? Why is that funny? Why did you believe what he's saying? Is it that impossible for God? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And some of us kind of feel that way, right? Like, oh, if that happened to me, that'd be, that'd be hilarious. Like, what to you would be the most hilarious thing for God to do in your life? It might be the case that God wants to do that. And so Abraham has this golden child. Not really golden, but you know what I'm saying. And then God tells him to do something strange. He says, I want you to kill your son. Now, what do you do with that? Did I hear that from the Lord? Is that really God? I don't know. Uh, he told me to do something that he, he himself doesn't believe I should do. He said I should kill. And the Bible says not to kill. So what do I do? Listen, is this a trick question? Okay, I don't know. Is God bad? Is that Satan? I don't know. But what Abraham decided was he was going to obey regardless of how it seems. This is so important. So important. Don't miss this. So important. Because this is one of the things, this is one of the principles that causes so many people to fall into sin. Two things. Will you simply believe what God has said or will you fear the consequences of doing the right thing? Will you listen to what God has said or will you fear the consequences of doing the right thing? So many people choose the latter. Consequences. If I tell the truth, then they will react like this. If I confront that person on their sin, this is what will happen. If I don't hide the sin, if I don't bury it deep down inside my heart, if I don't pretend like it never happened, then what will I do when my parents find out? What will people think about me? So many people stay in sin because they believe that if they could just make it go away, then the consequences will be better than if they brought it into the light. And so what happens is, because we're so crafty in our thinking, we'll evaluate the consequences and that will keep us in fear from making the right choice. Instead, what faith is, is believing without seeing. It's saying, I'm going to listen, regardless of the situation, regardless of what it looks like, I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to bring it into the light. I'm going to tell my parents. I'm going to tell my friends. I'm going to confront that person. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to do those things. Regardless of whether anyone accepts me, because I know that I need to please God and him alone. So Abraham believed God's word, saying like, listen, the worst that can happen is I kill my son and God brings him back to life from the dead. That's what it says in Hebrews as a commentary, is that Abraham believed so much that God would fulfill his promises, that he would work it out. I don't know I don't have the answers. I have no idea how this is going to work out, but I know what I have to do is I have to obey God's word. So what does that look like for you? Maybe that look, might look like saying no to that relationship that you know for a fact is not the right one. But because you think things like, well, if I don't say yes, this might be my last opportunity. They might not like me anymore. They might move on. This might happen. Forget all that and just ask yourself, what is God speaking in my heart? What does he want me to do? Maybe for you that looks like just reading your Bible. Trusting God again. Saying, you know what? I will start opening up the scriptures every single day. 
regardless of how I feel. I'm going to make that commitment. I'm going to start praying, praying for my enemies, praying for different situations, regardless of how I feel, regardless of what it looks like. I'm going to start having open conversations with my parents, regardless of what that looks like, regardless of how it feels, regardless of whether or not they've hurt you. You know what that looks like? I'm going to start trusting that friend who used to gossip about me, who backstabbed me, regardless of whether or not they do it again. Why? Because if your brother sins against you seven times, you got to forgive them seven times, or 70 times seven, still that, that many times. 144 times, you forgive them. Why? Because God forgave you, and he loves you, and he's good, and he's faithful. And regardless of whether or not we even are following him 100% all the time, he's still going to show up, and he's going to correct you, discipline you, so that you are brought back into the fold, and you're brought back into his loving arms. The question is, are you willing to sit before him? Are you willing to wait on him? So many of us are like a child in a supermarket. We're calling out for our parents, calling out when we're lost. You know, has that ever happened? You're lost in a supermarket and you're just like, I don't know where my parents are. Imagine a child just frantic. Like, where are my parents? Only to find that their mom and dad was right around the corner. And so many of us are feeling like we've lost sight of God when God is right around you. And all you have to do is put yourself in a position where you can hear him. 